um, hopefully we'll get through it. Father, thanks for a gorgeous day out, for the beautiful sunlight and for your provision for us. And thank you for bringing us out to your house that we may study your word. I pray that you would grant us understanding today in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, uh, we ended up talking about this whole concept of free will and the idea that man in his natural state has a will that is in bondage to sin. The pagan is in bondage to sin. They think sinful thoughts. They're, as it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, they're all gone astray. There's none that seeks righteousness, no, not one. Um, man does not seek God. Man seeks what God gives, peace, joy, love, all that stuff. But man does not seek God for God. It is God who seeks man. And Christ said that when he, um, when he in Mark, actually the key verse of Mark, where Christ says, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. God, it is God who does the seeking and God who does the finding. And so we've looked at these scripture passages and hopefully some of you have gone and looked at them again. Um, and here's the thing to understand. Unless God opens blind eyes and grants faith to the unbeliever, you'll never see. It is something that God grants to you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now, as, um, as this has been... Um, systematized in theology, um, I'm sure all of you have heard the concept of Calvinism versus what we call Arminianism, the Calvinism-Arminianism debate. And uh, if, I really, if I really dug into this historically and did all the work on it, we'd be here another five weeks digging through this. So hopefully I don't want to do that. Um, that is something that you can do on your own to dig deeper in this. this is one, that's a homework assignment, by the way. If you want to do some homework... You can go and do some research on Calvinism versus Arminianism. But I do want to bring this up because a lot of times when it comes to these predestination election debates, people bring up Calvinism. That's, that's sort of how they hang the, um, their arguments on this Calvinism thing. And some of them will say, well, you know, I'm a two-point Calvinist, I'm a three-point Calvinist, I'm a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist, or all that other kind of stuff. And so what I would hope to do here is just talk about what it is um, define it for what it is and talk about some of the common objections to these points, then you can go and research it on your own um, as you go through this. Calvin is, who is Calvin, first of all? Anybody know who John Calvin was? He was a reformer, the great reformer of Geneva. Um, I was actually in Geneva and I got to see the church that he preached in. Um, there in St. Peter's in Vienna, or not Vienna, but in Geneva, the old city. Um, and it was there that Calvin spent many years. He was probably one of the great theologians of the Reformation. He was a contemporary somewhat with Luther, Martin Luther in Germany. And um, he, he, this guy, he, got, he, he was a, literally, he was a preaching machine. Um, if you go out and look at the Calvin's Institutes, for example, and see his Calvin's commentaries, he wrote, I think, just about on every book of the Bible, a commentary. Um, he would preach, his first sermon was at 5 a.m. And uh, people would come and listen to him preach at 5 a.m. in the morning. And he preached like every day, and they would write his sermons down. And I was in the little chapel where he preached. If you are out to the website and you see that, that picture of... Um, it's the Tos Tenebrook's Lux on the wall. There's a wall out there. I forget which one of the um, theologies it is, but that is after darkness light. That's where he preached in that chapel there in St. Peter's. 
And uh, he didn't come up with this, but the theology that he um, popularized and preached brings these things out. Someone else came up with these after his death. And these were really in response to a guy named Jacob Arminius who was from um, the Netherlands, the, the um, Amsterdam area. And uh, the whole thing goes back to this free will, sovereignty of God, responsibility of man debate. And so, let's go through these one by one. Basically, uh, Calvinism is known by the caustic tulip. Anybody hear of tulip? T-U-L-I-P is the, is the acrostic that um, it's known by. The T stands for the concept of total depravity. We're going to talk about each one of these, by the way, so um, th- we'll, we'll get into more detail. The U, unconditional election. The L for limited atonement, which is probably one of the most hotly debated and stickiest of the ones. I for irresistible grace and P for perseverance of the saints. And this is how this has been systematized. Um, Just so you know, Schaefer, where are you at on this? I'm all five. So I'm a full five-point Calvinist. But I get to define what it means by that. Because here's the problem. And we're going to see this a little here. One of the problems when you start talking about like systems... Or, or, or like something like this, is people define it for what they want it to define it to be. All right. So you can ask this person over here, "What do you mean by total depravity?" And he has an answer. And then you ask someone who is a non-Calvinist or from the non-Calvinist persuasion, "What do they mean by total depravity?" And they come up with a totally different answer. All right. So what I'm going to try to do here is try to explain what Calvinism really says about this. Um, because there's a lot of futz out there about, well, you Calvinists believe blah, 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 and it's like, well, no, I don't. I'm a Calvinist, and I certainly don't believe that. Well, yeah, you do. Well, no, I don't. He said, well, yeah, you do, because you believe the limited atonement. I said, no, I I, I believe in a limited atonement, but not the way you're limiting it. All right, and we're going to talk about that. So, Calvin, oh, I thought, okay. Calvin was the great reformer in Geneva. He was probably, probably one of the greatest theologians of, the, of this millennium. Probably 1500s. Right around the 1500s is when he was there. Um, he, he really was um, right at the forefront of the Protestant Reformation. And many of the, uh, like the Presbyterian Reformed faiths trace their sort of origins back to him. All right. Um, there, there, there's some really good um, biographies of John Calvin you can get and read. Is it a, a, a Bible thing? I mean, is it yeah, yeah. Okay. He was a theologian. He was, he was a great theologian, yeah. Could you just explain to them, like, like really quick about Arminianism and Wesley versus Calvin? Because I think that's a base. Yeah. The, the, yeah. When you look at this. When you look at systems of theology, what you do is you have this, the question of human responsibility, sovereignty of God. And the way that's been sort of systematized into two different, I don't want to call them camps, all right, or two different theologies, is you have what we call the Arminian kind of theology. That comes from Jacob Arminius. He was from the Netherlands. And uh, probably denominations that would fall on that would be somewhat the Nazarene, the Wesleyan, and by the way, what I mean by that, it's not that they believe everything that Jacob Arminius believed any more than the Reformed people believe everything 
Calvin believes. It's just that these are two major theological like ways of understanding this whole concept of predestination election. Is that making any any sense? All right? And it's not that everybody agrees with every single point. That that's not what's going on here. So just because you might be maybe of the Wesleyan persuasion and that you would disagree with most of this doesn't mean you disagree with everything. What it is, it's a system of trying to hang together what is meant by these different um, viewpoints. It's sort of like, um, maybe another way to look at it, and we're going to get to this, dispensationalism versus covenant theology. Does that make any, anybody know about that? I'm getting ahead of myself then. Dispensationalists, where you believe, you know, there's a literal kingdom for Israel, there's a little future millennium, Christ is going to come back, the rapture of the church. Then there are, are those faiths or those systems that say, well, no, when Jesus comes back, he's just going to set up the eternal state and that's the end of things. All right, that, that, there's two systems. Okay, so that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at a system of theology. And, it's, and, and most times when people argue about or talk about, and, and you, you open the theology books and they're talking about this concept of predestination election, they're going to go back to this Calvinism, Arminianism debate. That's, that's where they're going to head back to. Because that sort of is the framework for their thinking on this. Okay, does that make any sense? John Calvin. His name was John Calvin. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's one of the things to understand about some of these reformers. And you know, if you ever take a course or do some reading on historical theology, it's interesting to see some of them. Um, but John Calvin, along with this that I believe he got mainly right, he also believed in the kingdom of God concept where, where it's sort of like um, the church is the kingdom of God. We are the Israel. And we should take over the world and run the world. All right, and um, sort of like a, a modern um, way to look at it, be Christian Reconstructionism. You know, it's a church. We should take over the world. We should run the government. And then when we get everything all fixed up and all cleaned up, Jesus will come back and we'll just sort of hand the reins of government over to him. He was wrong on that. Okay, he was very much wrong on that. So just because you know we might extol. Calvin, for one area of theology, he got right. Doesn't mean all of his theology was right. You know, these guys are trying to slog through some of this stuff. And one of the things that that was very evident back then is is there was a large equating of the church with the state. We have this state and church separate in America, but back then there wasn't that way. The church was the state. The state was the church, and it was ingrained in society. So when you were baptized back then, like in Martin Luther's day. You were baptized into the citizenship of the state. That was a state kind of thing. And there was little separation of church and state. And so he did some bad things. You bet he did. Um, especially with the Anabaptists. All right. And what we'll talk, what we'll get into the Anabaptists and all that stuff. If we do it now, we'll never get through this. All right. But just to say that this is where it comes from. So when you look together, when you look at this theology and you're trying to, trying to put a framework around it, there are two basic camps. There's the Arminian-type camp and then there's the Calvinistic camp. All right? And all this is all I'm trying to do here is just 
frame this up a little bit. We can't go through all the details of this. We'll never get done. But I'll at least let you go out and do some more further research on this and you'll know sort of what's going on. All right, I'll give you a framework. And when we talk about Calvinism, we talk about these five points of Calvinism. All right, T-U-L-I-N-P. And one of, the, one of the most important things just before we move on here in theology that you have to, as a theologian, you have to do is you need to understand correctly what the opposition is saying before you attack them or before you try to answer them. That's one of the things you need to be able to do. That's one of the things you need to do as a student. It's very easy sometimes to attack somebody's position that you think they have and that's not what they really believe. Um, you need to take the time to really understand what the other, or, or what you would think the other side or the other viewpoint believes before you can honestly look at it. And a lot of times what happens is, well, you're just one of those guys and you just, you know, erase people off or write them off. You can't do that. You've got to take the time to truly understand where the other side is coming from. And that's what I'm trying to do here a little bit. And again, I'm trying to stuff a semester worth of discussion into a couple of classes, and it's hard to do. What does total depravity mean? We've talked about this. Total depravity, and probably a better word, I think, to use is what we call radical depravity. And quite honestly, most, um, most from the other side, the, 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 the Arminian side, would sort of agree with this. Um, man is depraved. What do we mean by depravity? Sin has affected your entire being. Um, it's, there's, not, there's not any part of you that's not affected by sin. The argument is how bad has sin affected you? That's where some of the argument comes from. And we're going to explore that a little bit more when we talk about the topic of regeneration that's coming up in a, in a week or two. Um, what do we mean when, we, when somebody is regenerate? How are you regenerate? Is there, is there a spark in you that is able to in and of itself respond to God or does God have to, as we found in Ephesians chapter 2, is it all of God? And so the question is, how has sin affected the human being? What Calvinism would say is that sin has radically affected our ability to think, to understand spiritual, to understand spiritual things. And unless God does a work and opens the heart and mind of a man you will never see. And we found that there's significant biblical support for this, right? I mean, we talked about some of these passages where, you know, it says uh, you, you were dead in trespasses and sins. What does he mean you're dead? You're dead. Um, you're not sensitive to the things of God. Romans 3, 10 through um, 18 says all of us are gone astray. We've, all of us have turned aside. Um, we're all like sour milk. When we open our mouth, the poison of asps is under our lips. Um, the, the, it's like an open tomb. And no one seeks God. It says we're, we're, all of us have gone astray. And no one seeks God. God seeks us. We don't seek Him. And so what total depravity is trying to say is that we are radically affected by sin. Now, it's not saying that everybody's depraved as they could be. Right? Not every one of us is as wicked as we could be. <laughs> no matter how bad you are, you could be a little bit worse <laughs> if, you, if you worked at it. But what this is saying is that sin has, has touched every part of your life. It has touched your thinking, your ability to see spiritual truth. 
And that's why, like, when you talk to unbelievers about spiritual things and they have this blank look on their face, that's total depravity at work. It's radical depravity at work. They don't see it. I mean, think about, if some of you can think back to the time before you were Christians. And somebody would give you the gospel and you had this, like, what? You did, I don't get it. That doesn't make any sense. You're nuts. I mean, that's, that's their response. And the reason that's their response is because sin has darkened the mind. Remember it says in um, first Corinthians, or second Corinthians 4, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them who don't believe. It's a blinding, it's blindness. You can't see. You can't understand. And unless God takes the initiative and opens one's heart, no one will ever see. No one will ever understand. Is this making, making sense here, what I'm trying to get at? Okay? Now, the real question here, and, and we'll, we'll open this a little bit more when we talk about regeneration in a couple of weeks, is uh, there are some that say, well, okay, sin has affected every part of you. Sin has affected man. But it's, it hasn't affected you to the degree that you cannot, in a natural state, respond to spiritual truth if it's given to you. Follow what I'm saying there? There is a residual ability that even the absolute lost person has to respond to spiritual truth. Following this? In other words, they're dark, but you're not so dark as to be completely dead. There's, that, there's a, just a little bit of a spark there that can, that can respond. And we're going to talk about this when we get to regeneration, but yeah. We are created in the image of God, okay? And can a natural man um, contemplate spiritual issues? You know what I said? Contemplate. Sure. I mean, I mean, Buddhists contemplate spiritual issues. You know, so it's not saying we're total depravity here. It's not saying that that man doesn't have a spiritual um, capacity to contemplate spiritual things. What it's saying is that man cannot see in and of himself the truth of the Scripture, the Word of God. He cannot see the truth of the Word of God. Right. And I've seen that happen. I've been to classes where I've listened to religion professors who could read Hebrew for breakfast and all that kind of stuff. And when it comes down to the simple truth of Jesus loves me, this I know, it was completely incomprehensible to them. Now, they could, they could think spiritual things. They could think about different religious um, systems and all that kind of stuff. And I remember talking to one, um, one of my professors who uh, was an archaeologist and uh, he was of the neo-evangelical, neo-orthodox view where you take the leap of faith and you hope that God's there to sort of catch you. And uh, he sort of had a faith in a God, whatever that is, but trying to nail him down on that, you couldn't nail him down on that because it was sort of like, well, it, it's different for different people and each person has, you know, a different connection to God. And that, That's the natural man. The natural man, if left to himself, the Bible's the, the biblical um, imagery is you're like a, a sheep out on the 
wilderness wandering all over the place. I mean, you might contemplate spiritual things, you might understand spiritual systems, you might even develop sort of a theology of your own, but when it comes to understanding the truth of who Jesus is, and really, that's, understand that is the key. The key to salvation is to know who is Jesus and what did he do, and get that answer right. You can contemplate spiritual things. I talk to people all the time who have a view of Jesus. It's not the biblical view. It's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. It's the Jesus of their own imagination or their own creation. And the Scripture is saying unless... <coughs> and Jesus himself said this in, in John 6, as we looked at a few weeks ago. Unless it's granted to you by the Father, unless the Father draws you to me, you won't come to me. God has to take the initiative to show who Jesus really is. So, am I, is this making any sense here? Right. Yeah, you got it. And, you know, you can you can talk to the most brilliant theologian at, at the at you know the highest institute of learning in America, and if they do not have the spirit of God, they're going to come with all the wrong answers, and they're honestly not going to see the answer. They're not going to, they're not going to get it. They're not going to be able to understand how some Jew on a cross two thousand years ago has any impact on their eternal destiny. That makes non it's nonsense. And that's what it says in 1 Corinthians. To the Greek, the, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. It is absolute asinine moronity to believe that some guy hanging on a cross 2,000 years ago is your key to heaven. That's nuts. And when you go talk to the Jew, there's no way they're going to nail their own Messiah on a cross. So obviously it's not Jesus. And that's the darkness of man's own heart. And, 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 and I think the thing that we, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you don't, we see the light, we see the truth, we understand the truth. And it's hard for us to comprehend how somebody doesn't get it. We scratch our heads saying, how could somebody be so dumb? I mean, I look at these, you know, specials on TV and I scratch my head, how can somebody be so stupid as to believe that? And I have to catch myself, well, wait a minute. I have the Holy Spirit, I have God in me. I can see. They don't. Yeah. And here's the question. Who's a bigger pagan? The guy who bows down to a rock in Africa or the professor at Harvard who believes in evolution? I would argue the professor at Harvard is a bigger pagan than the one who bows down to the rock in Africa. Because at least the guy who's bowing down to the rock in Africa believes there's a deity out there. That's better than... Richard Dawkins, who comes along and says, if you, believe, if you don't believe in evolution, you're dangerous. You're dangerous. You're nuts, you're, you're deluded, and you're dangerous. If he had his way, he would incarcerate every Christian that believed in creation, because you're nuts. There is no God. Anybody who believes in God is crazy and a wacko. That's, that's, I'm, that's, go out and do, go out and do a search on this guy. This guy is so far out. 
I can't even, I don't even know how far out he is. He's, he's beyond the ability to see. He's so far out. Oh, good night. Yeah, that's about right. I mean, he is really bad. But Richard Dawkins, he's the author behind what's called a new atheism. You know, and it's not atheists to just say, well, you know, you believe in God, I don't believe in God, let's go our own ways. His, his is a radical atheism that basically says anybody who believes in God is deluded, nuts, crazy, whacked out, needs uh, therapy. You've got to get rid of God. So I don't want to be him when he finds out that this God really is there. That's not going to be a good thing. So you understand the, the total depravity piece here. We're not as bad as we could be, but sin has affected us to such a degree, humanity to such a degree, that if left to ourselves... None of us would ever believe. That's, that's the point. If left to yourself, you're going to do your own thing and go your own way. And unless God steps in and takes the initiative, no one would ever believe. Because we would not be able to comprehend. We would not be able to understand. Another way to look at this is where is God when it comes to creation? Remember way back a year and a half ago, we talked about creation. Inside creation, the box of creation, we all exist, time, space, energy, all humans, and God is the only one outside the boundaries of creation. So if God is outside the boundaries of creation and I can't get outside of creation to see that, what's the only way that I'm going to understand the God who is outside of creation? He has to get in the box. He has to take the initiative to reveal himself. And unless he does, there's no way I'm going to figure what's outside the box because I'm confined to this existence. All right? And that's the way it is in the spiritual realm. God takes the initiative. And quite honestly, most, most theologians, most people would agree to this to a large degree, if not the whole degree. They, 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 the, only, the only sticking point with some branches of the Arminian-type Arminian understanding is there's still a residual spark that can be fanned into flames if you do it right. That was what Charles Finney believed. He believed that he could fan that spark, he would be able to, to argue um, uh, well enough to convince somebody of the truths of Christianity and that person would believe and they really didn't need the Holy Spirit to do that. They could do it in and of themselves. All right? That was his theology. I would agree with that. And, and the way you know that is because when you look at human society, all human societies have some form of religion. Yeah. You know, unless you go to Harvard and you find out you shouldn't believe that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at every society, there is a religion. What this is saying is that you're going to always come up with the wrong one. If left to yourself, 
just left to yourself, you're always going to come up with the wrong God, the wrong faith, because it's God who needs to take the initiative. So, yes, there is. There is certainly a, a God-shaped vacuum, so to speak, in every person's heart. And there's a sense in which people want to be religious or think that there's a power in and, of, in and outside themselves, but they're not going to get the right one unless God takes the initiative. And that's what Christ came to do. He came to reveal the Father. That's, what he, that's his job, is to come and reveal God to us. Does that make, you know, you know, make what's going on there? Yeah. Right. 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 But the problem is, left to himself, man will not, he will search all over and never find the true God. Because what man is looking for is, is things like joy, peace, fulfillment, meaning, purpose. But those are all from my perspective. It's not from God's perspective. It's a selfish kind of thing. I'm going to get the wrong answer. That, that's what we're talking about here. Okay, so I think we beat that to death. Um, I'm doomed with time. You know, it just doesn't work, you know. We need more time. Um, unconditional election. We've also talked about this. This is the you. And uh, the basic concept here is that God's choice of the center was not based on anything, and this was really what a lot, some of the argument is here, based on anything the center would do. Calvinism would says that God's choice for the elect was something that he chose in and of himself according to the good pleasure of his will, as it says in Ephesians, for his own sovereign purpose and grace because he wanted to do it. And it wasn't because God saw anything particularly redeemable in the one that he elected. It's not that God looked down time and picked out people that he would sort of like to hang with and choose them. It was something solely based in the mind of God on a choice that God made. We talked about this. And this is really one of the arguing points. Is some people say... Well, you know, God, since God is omniscient, he knows everything. We've talked about this. God was able to look down and see that had I been given an opportunity to respond, I would have responded. Therefore, he chose me on the basis of what I would do. That's not what unconditional election is saying. Okay? What unconditional election is saying is God's choice is something totally within himself. And we looked at the biblical support for this. All right? Um, Are you a heretic if you believe that God saw something in you and respond. No, you're not a heretic. But you need to work through the passages. All right? And uh, man did not contribute to God's choice. You, you, didn't, you made no contribution. Now, that's humiliating um, to think about because we like to think that somehow there was something about me. I, I, I used to believe that. I used to believe, well, there's something about me that God just liked. And the more I studied the scripture, the more I found out my own depravity, the more I found out my own wickedness and evil, the more I came to the conclusion that, nope, God certainly didn't see anything in me that, was, that, that drew him to me. No, God says, it's almost like God said, well, I'm going to pick the worst of the worst and the wickedness of the wicked, and Schaefer's one of them, so I'm going to pick him. You know, because if I could save him, I could save anybody. You know, that's sort of the idea there, but... Um, what unconditional election is saying is that God's choice is totally His. And it's not, based, it's not contingent on any other factor but His own will. It's the same thing with creation. Why did God create the universe as He did? Because He wanted to. There was no external factor forcing God to do things the way that He does them. God alone is the sovereign being of the universe who does as He sees fit in all things. 
And even Nebuchadnezzar, it's interesting, even Nebuchadnezzar figured this out because he said, God alone is the one who does what he does and no one can say, what are you doing? Why did you do this? Why are you doing that? And that's what we've seen in Romans 9, right? Where Paul says, who are you to question the Creator who made all things? That's all. You're supposed because until yeah because what you're seeing here and, and this is something that you know I've been made aware of over the years. I am valuable because God, for whatever reason, chose to save me, and in doing so, He had to send Himself and the person of the Son to die on the cross for me. He paid the price for me. And um, when I truly understand that it's because of His grace and not because I'm a nice guy, it puts things into perspective and shows that the value that I have is not because there's some intrinsic component of me that's valuable, but because of the value that my Creator has placed in wanting a relationship with me. Did that make any sense? The way I have explained that, here's God, here's Jesus, here's me. God sees me through the pure, blood-washed whiteness of Jesus. Yes. That's what gives me value in God's eyes. Yeah. Jesus' death taking all of my garbage onto himself. Yeah. Um, Paul puts this in, in Corinthians. He says, we have this treasure in clay pots. And what's the treasure in clay pots? It's Christ in me. And he says, I'm a clay pot. Uh, what's a clay pot? A clay pot is a common, worthless kind of thing. You have hundreds of those. But the treasure in the clay pot is what makes the clay pot Valuable. It's like if I were to take a nice clay pot up here and fill it with gold, you would say, well, that's a valuable pot. Is it a valuable pot? What's inside is valuable. What's inside is valuable. The pot is the container. What's inside me is valuable. I'm the clay container that Christ... It's like Sammy said, God sees me through Christ. And the thing to, 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 to meditate on and to see that Scripture is trying to point out is in and of myself, I am a despicable, rotten, dirty sinner. And unless I see myself as that, I'm not going to respond correctly to the gospel. As long as I come to Christ thinking that I have something to offer Him, that I have some value, that I have some worth, He's saying, you don't get it yet. That was the problem with the rich young ruler, right? He came to Jesus and he said, well, I did all that from my youth up. I've kept all the laws. What am I missing? And Christ is saying, well, you, you don't understand. <laughs> you don't get it. And one of the things we're going to be looking at in the gospel is the starting point of the gospel. Where you start in the gospel is a recognition that apart from Christ, you are completely, totally lost. Yeah. He wasn't good enough. Nobody is good enough. And, and, and that's the starting point of the gospel, is to recognize 
your evil. That's how, that's how Paul deals with it in Romans. Before get, Paul gets to Romans chapter 3 where he talks about justification, and before he gets to chapter 4 where he talks about how that's obtained by faith, and before he gets to chapter 5 where he shows the value and the results of being justified, he spends chapters 1, 2, and half of 3 establishing the fact that apart from God, every one of us is hopelessly lost. Mm-hmm. Your worth, your worth to God, your worth in God's sight is because He loves you. He loves you, and He loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. It's because He said, "I love Nancy so much." He said, "I chose Nancy in eternity past to be with me." An eternity future. She's a sinner. The only hope she has is she needs redemption. I'm going to send my son, myself, to die for her, to take her sin upon me, to take her place on the cross. The value is from God's perspective. And that's why when I think of that, I am humbled to realize how much God loves me. And he gets the credit. And when I get to heaven, the only thing I can do is fall down and worship and appreciation and gratefulness for the love wherewith he loved us. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. All right? And, and I used the example a, a little back about, about if I have a, you know, a pound of gold and a $100 bill, which one's more valuable? Well, technically, the $100 bill is worth $100, but why is it worth $100? Because the United States government says it is. It is. That's why. The United States government says that's worth $100 or $50 or whatever it is. But there's nothing intrinsic in that note that's worth 50 bucks. It's paper and fibers and ink. It's, it's what's behind it. And that's the same thing. And, and when, I, when I contemplate that and I understand the great love God loves me... I fall down in worship and gratefulness and appreciation and awe of that. There and there. I can understand kind of what Nancy's saying because, you know, we live our lives because we want to please God. You know, so if you have Christ in your heart, you, have, you want to make this effort mm-hmm. to do what's pleasing to Him. So, you know, we're not like robots and He's controlling our every move. And the amazing thing is I can please him. How can I please him? I can please him when I obey him, when I honor him, when I love him. Don't ask me how that one works. Because who's doing it? The spirit within me. Is enable. That, that'll, that'll make you stop and think a little bit. I can actually make God happy by being a man of God. Yeah. Or I cannot. I can bring joy to God's heart. I can bring sadness to his heart. And that boggles your mind. How, 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 you have to contemplate that a little while. Okay? Marshall, you're going to say... It's It's riffraff. 
which is why he gets the point down in First Corinthians where he says that that uh, he showed the base things in the world so that no flesh should boast. So if the nobodies and the nothings were choosing God, how does that end human boasting? It doesn't end human boasting. If the weak and the foolish and nobodies are choosing God, then it still uh, it doesn't end boasting. Which is why he said if you want to boast or glory, let him glory in God. Yeah. And and that, that's the answer, Nancy. The answer is to understand my value before God is because of the treasure of Christ. And because God loved me personally so much that he sent Jesus Christ to take my place on the cross. Don't give him an F in school. That'd be horrible. You know, they actually flunked him out of the grade. Yeah. Go back to what God has done for us. God loved us so much, he died personally for us. That's, how, that's, that's why I'm valuable. Yeah, I can do nothing in and of myself. Paul said that. He said, I don't boast in it of myself. I boast in Christ in me, the hope of glory. And uh, that's, that's the proper perspective. And, and as long as you think that, that, you are, you know, that you in and of yourself intrinsically have something to offer God or valuable to God, can do those things, you're going to be in for a fall because you can't. Remember what Peter said? Everybody will deny you. I won't. Well, that's a good thing, Peter. You, you go on your own energy and strength. You're done for. But the, the way you win this battle is you depend on God who is my strength. God who is my resources. God who enables me to do that. Um, that's the proper perspective. I'm probably one of the most... Argue- I'm desperately going to try to get through this. We'll get to you next week if I don't get... Okay. Um, limited atonement. What, this is the most argued one. Because basically what happens is a lot of the non-Calvinistic people say, 
look, you're telling me that Jesus only died for the elect. He didn't die for the whole world. He only died for the elect people. And therefore, his atonement, his death on the cross was only limited. That's where the limited comes from. Limited to the elect. In other words, what they're saying, follow what they're saying here. Jesus did not die for the sins of the whole world. He only died for the sins of the elect. Do you follow that? You follow the words? Right. I'm, I'm saying that's, that's what is being said by this. Okay? Now, let's ask a question. Is Christ's atonement limited? Depends what you mean by what. Yeah. If Christ's atonement is unlimited, then who gets saved? Everybody. Follow? Follow the words? It's, it's the words here. Yeah, that's it. So, so, technically, everybody, the Arminians as well as the Calvinists, believe in a limited atonement in the sense that no, not every single person is saved. Follow? Right. And that, that's where this fits in here. Okay? But, but technically, what I'm trying to say is, when somebody, well, I don't believe in a limited atonement. I say, well, wait a minute. Unless you're, to, unless you're a universalist, you do believe in a limited atonement in the sense that not everybody gets saved. Right? Now, the argument is, okay, how is it that the person gets saved? That's where the big argument comes from. But there is, everybody believes in the limiting factor. Okay? Probably a better way to understand is called particular redemption. Okay? What does that mean? When Christ died, who did he affect the salvation of? The elect. Alright? Now, that does not mean, and this is very important to understand, that does not mean his death is limited in its value. Follow that? Because that's what is being argued. You're saying, you know, a, a non-Calvinist would come up to me and say, well, Alan, you believe that death's Christ has a, is of limited value because it's only limited to the elect. Well, no, it's an infinite sacrifice. And it is such of an infinite value that had God elected every single human being to salvation, Christ would have had to not die a second time. It's not limited in its value. It's limited in its Efficacy, that's a fancy word which means it's application. Following? Why would he have died if everybody's going to go to heaven? Why not? He didn't choose all to go to heaven. Okay, but they have this thing rattling around that they have any. Okay, let's, let's hear it rattle. <laughs> okay, rather. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I have always thought, okay, so my sister or whoever, this person just hardens their heart and doesn't want to believe. It's mm-hmm. their choice. Mm-hmm. You're right. That makes me very sad that God chose me. He didn't choose her, so I didn't go to heaven, and she doesn't. And no matter how much I pray or how much goes on in her life, mm-hmm. But she won't, and we're gonna. We, you missed a couple of classes when we were talking about this, and we're gonna try to wrap it up with this. 
she won't want to believe. And the scripture always focuses in on, from this perspective, the two levels. There's God's election, but there is human choice. But she felt what we felt, she didn't want to be there. Yeah. And, and the other thing here is that you need to pray for her because you don't know whether she's elect or not. Don't, don't go, you know, don't say, well, you're, she's not elect, I'm going to pray for her. You don't know that. We don't know that. We don't know, we don't know, we don't have a copy of the book of life. Okay? But the point is, whether you are a Calvinist or whether you are from the Arminian side of this where you say, well, they have a free will to choose or not choose, you have to admit that not everybody is saved. Right? Whatever reason, not everybody is saved. And it's and you're right. From the human perspective, you're absolutely right. There's a human perspective and a God perspective. You should probably get the whole series of what we're talking about. There's, there, there's two perspectives. Both. Don't try to figure it out. You're not going to do it. I haven't figured it out. It's like, is, is light, wave, is light uh, particles or is it waves? It's both. Yeah, because we have, we have a, a little bit different here. And it's, we're not heretics, either one of us here. All right. But, but, but this is a tough, and you know, this is one of those topics you're going to battle through for the, you know, the rest of your spiritual life and probably not get to the end of this thing. You've got to make all the verses fit, okay? But when we talk about this, when the Scripture talks about salvation, it's always talking to the person to believe. It's always calling them to respond. Right. We understand that from God's perspective, God knows who's going to believe and who will not. We don't know that. We call them to respond. And we urge them to respond. And Paul, you know, he, he, he spent his life trying to persuade men. And you're not going to get it together both but what we mean by limited atonement here understand the concept of limited atonement from the Calvinistic perspective is Jesus Christ died to save the elect alright because they are the ones that effectually believe it's not because his death is limited in its scope alright it's not because it's limited in its value do you understand the difference here what we're trying to get at it's not limited because it's not valuable enough and Christ says, well, you know, I'd like to elect one more, but, you know, I, I, didn't, I only paid so much and I just don't have enough grace left over. It's an infinite grace. It's an infinite sacrifice. It's infinite in its value, but it's only effective for those who believe. Mm-hmm. That's probably a good way to look at it. The other thing, in terms of, uh, you know, I'm elected this or my friend or this person is, it's hard for us to understand all of that because, first of all, we're limited in our understanding. Yeah. No. And if a loved one 
And, and that's that's a good way to put it. And I would just add to that 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 still we need to show the compassion and and, and, and pray for the lost. Yeah, I mean one of the. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, the compassion. I'm going to get to that. Here, I'm going to, I promise I'm going to get to that before we're done. Let's look at the irresistible grace, the I part. All that means is that those whom God elects, he is going to draw to himself. He's not going to overpower their will in the sense that he's going to kick, drag them kicking and screaming, but he is going to so move their hearts, so move their situations, so move the circumstances of their life, so move their hearts that they're going to be drawn irresistibly to the Savior and respond. Follow? He doesn't, he doesn't violate the creature's will, but he so draws you that you in and of yourself respond. And all of us in here believe why? Because we wanted to believe. All of us believe because we were drawn to the love that God had for us and that drew us to himself. Um, that's God's perspective. Keep your, keep your schizo hat on. All right? <laughs> Take off, take off that hat and put on the human side of this thing because that's, that's what we live in, right? I know. It's, it's really hard to grasp because like when she says, you know, we submit. Well, that's what I was saying earlier. You know, we do what God wants. We do. We live our lives because you want to be pleasing to God. And you want to please God because God put it... He's put it within your heart to desire to please Him. You know, it's God which works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. It's, you know, that's, that's, that's something to think about. Why do I want to please God? Because God has put within me the desire to please Him. But that's what irresistible grace means. It just means that God will draw those whom He chose. God will draw them to Himself. He won't overpower their will. He won't demolish their will. But He will bring them to the point where they will want to believe. Okay? Perseverance of the saints, this all of this means is that once you're saved, you're always saved. You can't lose it. And the way that the reformers really phrased this is they said, those whom God saves, he will work within them to help them hang on. And that's, what, that's one, of the, one of those um, paradoxical statements throughout Scripture where it says, well, you'll be saved if you hold fast to the end. And you look at that and say, well, that's saying like, it's almost like it's up to me. You know, if I hang on, then I'll get saved. Well, the way to understand is, why am I hanging on? Because God is hanging on over me. It's, it's like I'm hanging on, but over my hands are the hands of God that are helping me to hang on. It's Him. It's He does it. The, the point here is that God preserves the elect. God preserves them all the way to the end. You're not going to abandon the faith. If you are truly born again, you will not abandon the faith. You will not unbelieve if that because it's not possible to unbelieve. God will keep you. You are kept by the power of God. And it's God's power that does the keeping, not your own. Okay? 
You can't get unborn. You can't get unsaved. Because from God's eternal perspective, you're glorified in heaven right now. Mm-hmm. They're probably still praying in heaven, bugging God every day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to get to here, Marshall. Quick. Here's a more basic question that, that, that some may have. Is that everything is predestined by God already. That's, 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 that's the point. That, that yeah. The mind of some, that we hear from outside, I've had the same question brought to my attention. What's the point of praying if God were predestined? The only answer I have, not only the one answer I have, is you know God's command. Because you don't know. But then you have the other issue. Well, here's another way to answer that. Let's let's take um, let's take Andy's example. She has a sister. Let's say she has a sister who's an unbeliever. If she's praying for un- her sister's salvation. What is she more apt to do? And what else is she more apt to do? Share the gospel. Share it. When she has an opportunity, her heart is going to be so burdened that she's going to share with her sister. Right? Because you love your sister. You want... I have... Folks, I have a brother that I don't think is a Christian. I pray for him. And because I pray for him and I have a desire to see him come to faith and the compassion, and, and this is what's normal. This, this is one of the dangers. You don't want to get into this thing and say, what will be will be whether it will or not. Don't go there. Pray. We're told to pray for the lost. Paul said, I, I, be, you know, I, I expend my life to take the gospel message to people. Why is that? Because that is the means whereby the salvation is extended. You see that in Romans 10. Um, how should they hear without a preacher? They won't. And how will someone preach unless they are sent? Don't. The, the danger when we start talking about this, and that's why a lot of times people don't want to bring it up, because you get down to the extreme ends of things. You got one extreme end where you say, no matter what I do, the elect are going to get there, so I'm going to play golf every Sunday morning and bag this whole thing because I'm in, I'm okay, I'm just going to go have a good time because nothing I do is going to matter anyways. That's, her- that's a heretical way to look at things. The other equally bad part is say, it's up to me. And if somebody dies lost, it's my fault because I didn't tell them or, or I didn't say the right thing at the right time. And we get ourselves into that trap. It's, it's freeing to understand that God is at work and that I can be part of the process as I pray for the salvation of people, I can make myself part of this marvelous process whereby God draws people to himself. And here's another thing that I, I believe, because I had a lady ask me this in class one time. We had talked about this. And she came up and she was really um, distraught. She says, uh, you know, I have my kids. They're not Christians. And, and I'm afraid they're not elect. What do I do? I have such a burden for them. And I said, well, let's, let me ask you a question. If God, if your kids were, I don't know if your kids are elect or not, right? Ultimately, I don't. But why would God place a burden on your heart 
to pray for your kids if they weren't? I don't know that, but do you, do you, do you have an equal burden for everybody who's lost? In a general sense, yes, but in a specific sense, no. No, why is that? Maybe you're part of the process. Maybe you're part of the plan of God. And that's what, that's what I want to get just to, to, to wrap this up. And then you're on next week. I'm sorry we ran out of time. But, um, and we're going to get on with other topics and we're going to have to leave this one behind and let you work through it. This is some implications here. i got three slides. Number one, God does not squash the will of the unbeliever. What does he do? He draws that person to himself. Anybody in here come to Christ because you didn't want to? When you came to Christ, what happened? Did you want it? Yeah. You sure did. Yeah. Did you feel your will was being violated in any way? No, but what happened? God so drew you to Himself that you wanted this. That's what we mean by God's call. God moves your heart. And, and that goes back to the circumstances of your life. It goes back to maybe a situation you were in. It goes back to your upbringing. Your birth in this country. To the parents that you were born to in the, lo- in the geographical location you were at. All of that is part of the wonderful sovereign plan of God that we don't have access to. But God drew you to Himself. Thus the thing to understand is the unbeliever believes because he wants to believe not because his will has been violated. Understand that. I'm not saying a person's will is violated, but God so draws them to himself that they will want to believe. Second thing, all of the elect, all of those who God has elected will in time believe and place their faith in God and be redeemed. No one who is elect gets lost. God doesn't lose any of his own. That's what Christ said. All that the Father gives to me will Come to me, and I will lose none of them. So, if you are elect, you will believe. At some point in your life, you will believe. God will draw you to himself, and you will believe. And that's what it's saying. No one who is elect will refuse the gospel. That's the irresistible grace part. You're not going to refuse it. If you're elect, you're going to believe because you want to believe because God has drawn you to himself. And that will be something that you want to do on your part. Here's the other thing to understand, though. No one who is not elect will really want to believe. They will not want to repent. This is the hard part of this, but if someone refuses and refuses, like Pharaoh did, harden his heart, harden his heart, harden his heart. What did God do? God allowed Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh was going to do in and of himself. God took his hand off, and what did Pharaoh, a natural man, do? He rejected God. And that's what all of us would do had God not drawn us to himself. We would all have rejected him if left to ourselves. So the, the, the deal here is you can't... Some people say, well, what if you're not elect and you really want to believe? Well, you're not going to want to believe. That's the point. You're going to have no desire to believe. There's not going to be any, any wooing of the Spirit. You, you, may, you may be like Felix was uh, uh, convicted of your sin to some extent, but you're not going to turn to God for salvation. Was, did Judas feel bad about his sin? He sure did, but it was not a repentance to salvation. He just felt bad about it. 
Well, said he went to his own place. He hung himself. He hung himself and went to his own place. He, he is one that we're pretty sure is not going to be in heaven. But he's not in heaven because his entire life he rejected, 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 rejected. And he, and he was with Christ. Yeah, he was with Christ. I mean, he was right there in the presence. Of, yeah. So that's the thing. Here's, here's the thing to understand. A person's eternal destiny does not depend on us. You understand? Because there are some, some faith or, or some denominations that say, you know, if you see somebody, you don't witness them, that person dies lost, it's your fault. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now, it may be my fault that I'm disobedient and I didn't witness to them, right? But, but it's not my fault if they go to heaven and it's not my fault if they go to hell. I don't get the credit for somebody going to heaven. And I don't get the blame for somebody going to hell. I do get faulted for not doing what God has called me to do. It's sort of like what you see in Esther where Mordecai tells Esther, if you don't do anything, God will save his people, but you're going to miss a blessing. So that, that's the way to understand it. It's not my fault. So I don't have to be, be distraught and, and nervous and all uptight over somebody who won't believe. And somehow it's, well, it's my fault. If I could just share the gospel different, if I could just say the right words, they would believe. It's not you. Yeah. And here's the, in this last slide. I, I got through it. The Bible clearly teaches that those who are lost are lost. Why? Because they refuse to believe. They refuse to believe. You've got to keep that hat on. If not, you're going to get confused. And what does it mean? Well, if they're not elect and God does not draw them, what will every single human being do? Reject. It's, it's, in, it's in our DNA. We will never believe. And those are redeemed, who are redeemed are redeemed because God has opened their minds and helped them to understand and see. So, let's, let's end it with this statement here. Don't worry about who's in the book of life other than your own name. You don't know who's in the book of life. I don't know who's in the book of life. I don't know who God has elected. I don't know who God... It's not elected. What God has called me to do is to be part of the process. I'm to pray for the salvation of the lost. I'm to be a witness. And I'm to pray as though God is going to save them. I can't go around saying, well, God, you know, if they're really elect, you know, I hope they're elect. No. Pray that God would save them. Don't pray that He would. And you know what? I've seen God answer that prayer. And it's pretty cool when He does. And, and you've got to keep the two hats on. Got to keep them both on, and we got to quit here. Is, is that, you know, yeah, other than his family. He told us to pray because as we pray, we prepare our hearts and become part of the process. We become part of the plan of God. Kim, you're... Well, I was just going to say, I think that's a good 
Yeah. And that's George Mueller prayed for two friends for 25 years to come to know the Lord. George Mueller is the greatest prayer warrior the church has probably known in, the, in this millennium. You can read his biography. And one of them came to know the Lord shortly before George Mueller died. The other one came to know the Lord about six months later. He didn't give up. Don't give up. Don't become fatalistic. Believe that God can save, and He will. And you'll be part of the process. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day and for your provision and for your grace. And help us to comprehend these very, 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 very difficult things and ponder them. And pray that you would grant us wisdom, Father. And help us to be witness to those who are lost and believe that you are a God who saves them and you can save them. In Christ's name, amen.